Hello, and welcome back to the Argus podcast. This week, Simon Evans joins us from his garden in Hove. The comedian takes a look back at his 25-year career and looks ahead to continuing his UK tour. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here after all these years, about time. Now, what's the countdown like in these final few weeks before you start? Are you still prepping and planning or is it a case of just waiting? This tour has been underway since October of 2019. It's when I started to tour this show and I managed to get quite a few dates in in January and February of 2020, halfway through March, when um, we uh, realised that the pandemic was going to prevent us carrying on. So we took a sort of decision then to um, preemptively postpone and reschedule. We rescheduled many dates once, some of them twice. Every time we thought there was a bit of light, a crack of light in, the, in between the clouds, um, they would gather again. But been back on the road with Gusto since September of 2021. So I'm five months into the rescheduled tour now. May is um, probably the last month of the spring leg, and then I'm booking further dates in already for the autumn as well. I wouldn't normally run a tour that long, to be honest. Uh, Obviously, with the pandemic has disrupted things, but also this is an unusual show in that it is a sort of culmination in some ways of, of 25 years of comedy that I've been performing because for various reasons, which are all connected with a quite a significant sort of revelation within the show, it feels like a, a sort of culmination of everything that I've been saying and talking about over that 25 year span. And for people who have tickets or will be looking to get tickets, what can people expect from the tour? Well, it's a two hour long show and that's quite a long stretch for stand up comedy. And it's an investigation to begin with of themes of identity, I suppose, and the extent to which one can construct an identity or an identity is something you're born with or something you have to accept whether you like it or not, then there is a, and there's a degree of sort of comedy around that. Obviously, uh, it's a a fairly sort of fundamental aspect of identity, in my view. I think the uh, the idea of, um, of who we are is kind of the root of of where most comedy comes from, because you draw contrast between those two, you know, different con- contrast between different identities and so on, whether they do different classes or ethnicities or sexes or genders, or whatever. And then, as I say, there's a sort of final third where I receive some fairly initially shocking news about my own identity, which um, I've now absorbed and integrated and made my peace with and, and, and comfortable with, but which was initially quite a fairly sort of fundamental shift in who I understood myself to be which um, I think sort of throws a new light onto the previous two thirds of the show. And as I say, the previous 25 years of comedy that I've been doing as well. Now, jumping back to the start, you were born and raised in and around Bedfordshire, Hertfordshire. What sort of upbringing did you have? I know it's a bit of a cliche question, but have you always been funny growing up? Well, that's quite an interesting question. I, I wasn't really aware that I was particularly funny growing up. I think like a lot of comedians, actually, I was aware that to be funny was quite a source of sort of social power or social status that I wasn't always necessarily the master of and uh, I would probably point to one or two good friends who were naturally more funny more capable of holding you know holding court at the table or in the bar and were probably more naturally uh, garrulous and popular I think for myself to some extent stand-up comedy was an attempt to control a small 
territory, the stage, wherein I could take the time I needed in order to be the funny one for a change. You know, I mean, I, I was always aware that um, being funny in class was quite a good way of making the time pass more quickly. And I enjoyed that sense of getting a laugh from the crowd, uh, from, the, from the classroom. But I wasn't um, regarded as sort of an hilarious person by any means, I don't think. And I wasn't really the class clown, more like the class sniper. I think that's how I always sort of thought of stand-up comedy as being a bit in that mode, really. And you studied law at university. Was the aim to be a lawyer at that stage? Yeah, I had a, a vague notion that I would follow in the path of Rumpole of the Bailey, who was um, an odd archetype, really, looking back, a rather disgruntled, cynical, disillusioned old bugger who had, um, you know, <laughs> found himself in a very stale and unsatisfactory marriage, caught up in the internal politics of his chambers. It's bizarre that I would look at that uh, as an 18-year-old and think, yeah, I'd like to like to be like one of those. But nevertheless, that was kind of my idea of what a criminal barrister might be. Just somebody who could be dry, witty, use their command of language in order to carry the day. I found fairly quickly within the law faculty at Southampton University that there was a lot more reading to be done, a lot more hard work to be done, and a lot less of it was sort of carried by shooting from the hip. And I realised fairly early on that I probably wasn't cut out for that amount of work, if I'm honest. And I probably achieved 90% of what I hoped a a barristerial career would have provided by being a stand-up without having to do the work. So that's worked out quite well. If you read the comment section on any video that you appear in online, you're often considered one of the most intelligent comedians on the circuit. I was just wondering whether that's in any way offensive to you, suggesting you, you can't be a comedian and intelligent, or is it just a sort of nice compliment to receive? It's a nice compliment to receive. I, I don't know that it's funny. You don't sort of consciously attempt to flourish your intelligence on stage, but I suppose to some extent my my material is a little bit more verbose. I'm perhaps slightly more ambitious with my language. Uh, there's a certain dryness to it that might suggest uh, that you have to be paying attention to follow it. But um, some of the most intelligent comedians in some ways are, are not always the ones that, um, you know, uh, you would immediately associate with that. I think it might be partly that I am portraying a, a quite middle class educated persona. That at least was the first sort of 10 years of it or so who was looking down on the rest of the world with a, with a degree of supercilious contempt. I think I've moved on from that to some extent now. I think every few years you sort of revisit your fundamental persona and, and have to kind of uh, revive it, move on and um, re-establish where you're really at in life. For the first 10 years or so, I really was a sort of rootless bachelor who could afford to be quite contemptuous of the rest of the world and all the mistakes it was constantly making. Once you have a wife and kids and you sort of move into that mode, you become a lot more aware that uh, you can't quite control your destiny in such a, an easy and uh, painless and frictionless way. The comedy persona adapted, I think, to to recognise that. I don't know how intelligent other comedians are, but I know, for instance, I would think of somebody like Frank Skinner as being a very clever, very, very intelligent, quick-witted comedian, but a lot of his material would be considered sort of coming from working-class drinking culture, which you might not say was necessarily learned or, uh, or academic. But, but actually, he's a very, very smart guy. So it's not always easy to connect that the reality of the intelligence with the tradition that you're, you're trying to sell on stage. When did the transition into comedy happen for you? Was it whilst you are at university, post-university? I did a little bit of writing and sketch work at, at university. It never occurred to me to be a 
stand-up comedian and I tried to publish, I tried to get a couple of sitcom scripts sort of taken up and had no success with that at all in my 20s. I think for me, the big break, actually, I was I was starting to make a break into local journalism and um, I was like, yourself possibly, and a, a local newspaper in London asked me to write a story about some people who were doing improv workshops, uh, improvised comedy, which was a lot of fun. You couldn't really make any sort of a living out of it, but people were doing it in the evening just to have a bit of a laugh. And, um, and they were learning the tropes of it, a little bit like, you know, amateur dramatics or something, but also a little bit more like a sport. Almost, It's almost like acrobatics or something, um, improv, because you have to learn how to work with other people, have a degree of uh, of interplay with them and, and um, what would you call it? Mutual sort of understanding. And I found that very enjoyable and very enlivening. And um, I really got into it. I started doing improv once or twice a week. As I say, mostly workshop environment rather than on stage in front of a paying audience. And uh, and from there, I met a few people who were doing stand-up and who said, well, you can, you can do a course in stand-up as well. You might enjoy that as well. So I did without, again, really thinking it was going to become a, a living. I uh, did a course at the thing called the City Lit, which is a, an adult education college in just off Drury Lane in Common Garden. And um, those were Saturday afternoons, very enjoyable again thought I might as well try an open spot, see how it goes, you know, and before you know it, you'll sort of become hooked. I didn't earn much money for the first six months, but I became quite addicted to the adrenaline of it all. I think it was a bit like a, an extreme sport, you know, you kind of have to take a deep breath and go on stage. It's a bit like taking a parachute jump or something. And it would become a, um, it became a really vital part of my life, you know, and I didn't really have a day job that I had to give up or anything. So it became, it became quite entrenched in my sort of weekly routine quite quickly. And um, before I knew it, it was make, earning me more money than, than journalism or anything else I was doing. So that's what I became. And now you live in Hove. What sparks that move and how long have you lived down here? We moved down here in 2007, late 2007. An interesting time. We sold our house in London. The place we were buying down here fell through and we found ourselves renting just as suddenly there was this kind of enormous financial catastrophe. Unnerving period, but we did okay, I think. And we, we bought a house down here and we ended up moving two or three times over the course of the next uh, 18 months. But um, it was a bumpy landing, but we moved out of London essentially because we had small children. My wife felt that she wanted them to grow up somewhere where they would have you know, seaside and countryside and so on, rather than being too sort of urban, which is we were in South London at that point. I, I miss it still, to be honest, but Hove has been very good to us. It's uh, obviously Brighton is a vital and, and, and exciting sort of town as, as small provincial towns go. It has a lot more of that London's energy than, than some of them do. And also a very vital sort of comedy scene. It felt like it was better than moving to Crawley or Horsham for me or something like that, because it had, you know, the Comedia Comedy Club and it had its own comedy festival, in fact, at that time, which no longer exists, sadly, but which was quite an, the, uh, an exciting affirmation of its commitment to live comedy, you know. Yeah, so, I mean, I think Brighton is, a, is off, often the choice. Brighton and Hove is often the choice for people who want to move out of London and yet not, <laughs> if you know what I mean. You've referenced Brighton and Hove numerous times in your comedy and things. Is it easy yeah. to find comedic content living in Sussex? I think some of what I found was I played on the fairly well-established trope that Brighton is sort of hedonistic cheap and trashy, whereas Hove is a bit stuck up and sort of moralistic and sniffy. The fun with those things is always to take the initial well-known trope and then kind of tweak it and play with it and investigate it to see how much truth there is in it. And I'm not sure there is a huge amount of truth in that particular one. I think actually Brighton is every bit as, as you know, there's every bit as much wealth and poshness in, in Brighton and there's every bit as much shabbiness in those. But um, you don't want to overdo it. But when you go on stage, certainly for the first time, in front of an audience who don't know you, they do expect you to talk a little bit about where you come from. I think it's just the same as when you meet people at a party, you know, you say, who are you, where are you from? You know, 
the big questions any compare asks an audience member at the beginning of the game is who are you, where are you from, what do you do, meaning what do you do for a living? And it's quite a reductive question in many ways. You know, many people probably define themselves more by the sport they play at the weekend or the hobbies they have or some kind of other affiliation rather than what job they do, you know, for a living. At least is a sort of starting point for for a comedy set to talk about, and then you move on from there. In the current set that I do, the, the two-hour show that I'm touring, I hardly mention Brighton and Hove at all, actually. It's it's kind of, I think people have been following me for long enough, they know about that, and that's sort of absorbed and understood now. When did performing become a full-time occupation for you? 97, I think that would have been. First, first year or so, it was... Um, you fit it in around other obligations and um, and and uh, sort of revenue, but by about a year in, uh, I think um, I was in a stand-up competition in Edinburgh in '97. Came second in the final of the open mic competition, and that was enough to attract a bit of attention. Got myself an agent. He started to bring me in work. Some of it was quite well paid, but it would mean travelling, sometimes flying, staying overnight. You couldn't necessarily um, expect to do other things as well. So that was the point at which I suppose it was a a full-time commitment. Yeah, so that's been 25 years now. For the listeners who may not be as familiar with your work, how would you describe your humour and your performances? Well, it's it's always treacherous for a comedian to describe himself, but I suppose it'd be safe to say dry, deadpan. I don't laugh a great deal. Most of the time I appear to be mildly irritated or really quite angry, you know, on stage. I speak in that kind of mode rather than kind of chummy. Isn't it? It's funny, isn't it? When that happens, you know, it's more like, um, does this annoy you? Because it really annoys me, that kind of... <laughs> and, and most of it is genuine, you know. I don't try and create artificial sources of irritation just for the sake of it. I don't try and um, contrive friction i find there's plenty to be angry about we're all confused about or or to not understand why people don't do things in a slightly different way that kind of thing you know it's that's that sort of it, it is observational i think all commit comedy is has to be observational ultimately um i mean you can do surreal stuff about fishes and elves and what have you but it will still only really connect if it's if it's making some sort of sense to people as a metaphor for something they do recognize but um it's quite personal it's um honestly acknowledges the extent to which, you know, late middle age, I'm 56, and you start to feel certain aches and pains, you start to become forgetful, you know. there's. I think you have to recognise some of those things start to happen to you, and to try and act too young for too long would be a mistake. So there's some recognition of that, but hopefully not so much that it would be alienating to anyone who wasn't experiencing those things. And you do a lot of radio work. Is there a difference between performing stand-up comedy and performing on the radio or presenting on the radio? Yeah, absolutely. When you when you perform stand-up comedy, you are listening to the audience and you're you're performing a sort of sinuous dance with them, really. And I, ideally, you your timing and everything else reflects the response of the audience. The radio series that I've done, Simon Evans Goes to Market, we've done six series of those. Those are largely scripted. I can I can break, you know, if there's a, a long and unexpected laugh, I can adapt to it, but it's a fairly scripted performance. And if you're on panel shows like the news quiz or whatever, I mean now those are recorded without a live studio audience you have an audience on zoom it's quite odd but really you're performing you're responding to the ebb and flow of your other panelists you know the other guests so there is a knack a different knack to all of them i haven't done nearly as much panel game work as some comedians and i think there's a real knack to that that i'm i'm not sure if i'm entirely honest that i've quite nailed it yet i don't know if i ever will do but um it's very difficult it's very hard to, to perform the panel game mode 
just with an unadapted version of your stand-up mode. They're very different skills, I would say. And and some people who are excellent on panel games are not necessarily stand-ups like ODC and vice versa. You know, some are really excellent. But both Sean Locke was a good example. Who very sadly died last year. Sean was a very very funny man, a great stand-up comedian, and a really great panelist on Eight Out of Ten Cats primarily. And um, he had managed to sort of adapt his his stand-up persona to the panel game. If anything, he was probably stronger by the end as a panelist than he was as a stand-up, which was remarkable, really. I've, I've not managed to do that, if I'm honest. I, I think when I when I do the news quiz, I kind of know what my role is, which is to be a counterfoil to all the sort of liberal progressive politics that predominate with the younger comedians. But it's um, it's defined very much by, you know, what I fit in, what, what I offer as a, as a, as a by, um, by way of contrast with what they're bringing. Another part of your career is writing. Do you have a favourite project you've been involved with, whether it's performing, writing, radio or something else? Well, the last year I've been a regular columnist from an online magazine called Spiked, and I found that very rewarding. And for the year before that, actually, during lockdown, I was writing fairly regularly for The Spectator online as well, just their lifestyle sort of branch, not, not heavy current affairs stuff. But with Spiked, it's more current affairs. And I find that really rewarding, actually. It, it's very enjoyable to move into a new field and to be doing something that is that stretches you on a daily or at least weekly basis to write something new every week for them is quite a challenge, but it's a real sense of satisfaction at the end of it. Whereas when you write, when you do stand-up comedy, if you're honest about it, you know, generally speaking, you spend a month or two getting the show together. Once it's done, once it's nailed down, that's it, really. You know, you take it on tour. Of course, you adapt a little bit every night. You have a little bit of banter with the crowd and something might occur to you while you're on stage. But you're not going back to the drawing board and writing again on a regular basis. It would be insane to try and do that. And also the show will get too long, you know, because there's the, if there's a bit that's not working, you might have to keep testing new bits until you find a bit that does work in that slot. But you can't be constantly adapting it. So it can actually be less creative than than, um, than you would hope once you're a touring comedian. You, you find you might spend a year without writing anything new. So writing for columns... Is, is really rewarding. The money is no good, but um, luckily the tour pays reasonably well and that frees up my days to do writing for, for the magazines. Now, you've written some incredibly funny material over the years. The three men joke, I think, is something that almost everybody has shared, told, knows. And I know anyone who doesn't know about it to so go look it up in their, in their own time. This may just be me, but what's it like knowing that your joke is told by so, so many people? Very nice of you to say so. It was probably the only one that's ever sort of gone viral that I've been aware of. People have like sent me a WhatsApp message saying, you'll never guess what somebody just sent me, not knowing they know you or whatever, you know. Well, the first thing to say is the, the bare men, minimum fundamentals of that joke, I didn't write. They, they were originally told to me actually by a guy called Pete Graham, who runs a comedy club in Crouch End called Downstairs at the King's Head. And we were doing uh, the Christmas edition of University Challenge. We were in a team for the comedians, although he's actually a club owner rather than a comedian. There were two other comedians and myself. And he told that joke sort of on the tour bus, you know, as we were heading up to Manchester. What I've done with it, I suppose, is just add on bits, tweak it, enhance it, embellish it until it becomes almost like a step-by-step examination or analysis, like a quite tongue-in-cheek analysis of how the joke works and why it isn't actually plausible that this would happen or why this, you know, a different sort of course of events would probably unfold with this being a joke, this is what happens. It's a, a lovely thing, that, in itself, because it's 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 rare. It's the only one I've done like that. I've tried to do it a couple of other times to see if it couldn't be repeated, but it doesn't seem to take as well. So that's a really, yeah, it's lovely to have, a, you know, a routine, a uh, two or three minutes that, that will sort of go around the world. But it's a bit like a folk tune, you know, it's a bit like a folk song. They're always, it's like a lot of Bob Dylan sort of 
were great songs. There are often, if you go back in time, you find where he got that guitar riff from, where he got that that little phrase from, you know, a little bit here from the Bible. There's a bit there from Robert Browning. That little chord sequence was taken from Woody Guthrie or Davy Graham or something. I think comedy is a lot like that. You know, very few classic routines, however long they are, however developed they are, whether they're just a great single one-liner, there's usually a prototype somewhere in the back of the comedian's mind. They've heard something similar and they've just adapted it and evolved. And that's that's what I like about stand-up comedy. I wouldn't want it to be something that was striving too hard to be incredibly original. Most of my favourite art, if I'm honest, is from the roughly the Renaissance or even a bit earlier, some of it, up to, you know, the mid-19th century, the pre-Raphaelites. I'm not that fond of the stuff that tries too hard to be incredibly original, the cubism or the modernism. I find it tiresome, you know. I would rather see people working well within a, a very well-established tradition, and that's what that's what suits me. So I feel like it's I feel like I've given it a burnish and then passed it on, you know, and hopefully other people will tell it and give it a bit of a spin as well. How much of a role does politics play in your life and your comedy? And do you think there's ever anything off limits in terms of comedy, politics or otherwise? I mean, you, you can't avoid politics entirely in any stand-up set. And, and everyone would say, you know, that there's there are political assumptions that underpin almost anything that you say. But party politics, I think, is quite tiresome. I, I don't like personally stand-ups that spend too much time attacking individual politicians or demonstrating their support for one party over another. I find that quite divisive. And I think Brexit did an awful lot of damage to the world of stand-up comedy because it seemed that every stand-up had to have a view about it. And they all seem to think that anyone who voted Brexit was a Neanderthal racist knuckle-drugging thug and uh, throwback and it was a, it was, it was a disgrace and, and they had um, let down the side terribly and so on and I found that very divisive. I think the great thing of stand-up comedy, of course in, in the course of an evening, different targets of, of any stand-up will, you know, might wince as they come under scrutiny but hopefully you move on, you know, in the course of 20 minutes, let alone a couple of hours, you cover a lot of targets. If you get too political then it can become, it can become a repetitive nag you know there are some comics who were brilliant at it um jeremy hardy bless him was was a superb comedian despite everyone knowing very much his sort of hard left political views you never felt excluded from enjoying the comedy if you didn't share those views but it can be it can be a trap and you can fall into becoming a little bit of a what they call clapter in america where you know you're you're playing you're playing a room hoping to get the sound of approval of of confirmation for your views rather than i think the really strong laughs the laughs that every comedian should be aiming for are the ones where the audience laugh almost against their will you know that kind of <coughs> can't quite believe you said that sort of noise it's hard to get that if they start to know what your political views are and you and you your jokes fall in line with them all the time it's not a cop-out necessarily but it's no it's you know you i think all comedians should have that groucho view you know never be a member of any club that would have you as a member you should be an outsider really so if you want to do political material my favorite would generally be to say a plague on all their houses and um by all means draw attention to the you know the hypocrisy of the of the mps but at the end of the day we get enough politics i think and actually the, the great strength of stand-up comedy is it can remind you of the more fundamental things about life that actually are what really define us uh, who we are and, and how we experience one another i'm just intrigued if you could tell me a little bit about erotic fiction and your connections and involvements with that yeah i used to write um readers letters mostly for men's magazine back in the days when that was still a viable mode it was when i was trying to get into stand-up uh, sorry before stand-up comedy i was trying to get into journalism and uh, i was actually reading a book 
called England's Dreaming, written by a music journalist called John Savage. It was about sex pistols and the birth of punk in the UK. And Malcolm McLaren used to do that. He used to write, the, the manager of the sex pistols, he used to write readers' letters for this magazine. Um, that got mentioned. I thought, I wonder if I could do that. It just occurred to me to have a go at it, like it did loads of other things, you know. But on that occasion, I sent one off. I sent off a sort of supposed confession, basically, to a magazine, obviously totally fabricated. And... Um, and they bought it immediately. You know, I got a letter back within about a week uh, offering me 50 quid for it. And so I, I sent them an invoice for the 50 quid. And along with that, I sent them a second story. And, um, and then that we were off and running. And it became a, a living for about a year and a half. I had a, a sort of uh, features editor who lived in a very agreeable townhouse in Chelsea. I can't imagine he got all of it through um, the tatty stuff I was writing for him. But he, was, um, he would give me commission and I would, um, I would turn them out. And as I say, for the first year or a year and a half or so, so it was good fun. It was quite interesting trying to create new scenarios. I was a little bit more interested in trying to find variety than um, than in sort of going straight in for the, uh, the vivid, literal descriptions of the mechanics of the thing. <laughs> I thought it was more important to uh, to create a sense of sexual tension and perhaps inappropriate locations and that sort of thing that would create some some frisson. And uh, and I enjoyed it. It was good. But um, eventually, of course, it um, you, you sort of run out of ideas. <laughs> Luckily, by then, I had to stand up to move on to. For a final segment of each episode, we ask guests their favourite things, places, shops, etc. in Sussex in a segment that we call Five of the Best. But, uh, well, I mean, most of what I know in Sussex is, is Brighton and Hove. But for one, I will say just outside of that, Shoreham, walking up the, the banks of the river, which I've done with a dog on many occasions, walking up towards... I remember it's St. Botolph's Church, I think it's called, little church um, quite near Lansing College up that side. That can be absolutely beautiful when the sun is in the right mood and the, the sky is clear, the, uh, the the river is quite broad and silvery. It's, it's very, very beautiful up there. So that's a great walk. There's some lovely bluebell woods uh, near Stanmere Park where I like walking the dog. I do still like the lanes in Brighton very much. Those are great uh, shops to poke around in. And it's nice to see the vitality of all the young folk there, even if they are a bit oddly dressed sometimes and covered in tattoos, whatever you I'd still feel there's a degree of uh, youth and vitality and optimism to be found in that neighbourhood. I think in terms of, we do like going to the Ram at Furl. That would probably be our favourite pub and sort of grown-up pub and uh, and eating place. We like Furl very much. That's just the other side of Lewis from us. But in, in the lanes, there are lots of great boozers as well. That is one of the great strengths of of Brighton come out of the dome and go in the wagon and horses for a pint afterwards to uh, debrief and whatever it is you just saw that's a great tradition just very very lastly I'm assuming your tour will take up most of your time but what can people expect from yourself in the near future and beyond well I'm hoping to take a different show to Edinburgh for the festival this year and I think it's going to be more like a like a dry run for what I will then pitch to Radio 4 as a series to supersede Simon Evans Goes to Market. Instead of looking at economics, I'm going to look at ideologies, political beliefs, religions and so on that have gripped peoples, nations and so on at one time or another and whether they've done them any good, whether they tend to work whether they tend to lead to human flourishing and happiness and productivity and stability and uh, or whether they tend to be damaging. I find that quite interesting. I don't think many people are capable of living entirely rational, clean, uh, atheistic and sort of, you know, fact-based lifestyles. I think we all need some sort of myth or story to, to, to grow around and to grow up with and to cling to. And I think a lot of our current woes are, are that we don't really have one in this country. I think we are lacking that somewhat. We're sort of somewhat adrift. Some people would say they are, you know, following the science and um, they understand 
genetics, Richard Dawkins, the selfish gene and all of that explains everything you need to know and anything else is like unicorns and fairy tales. But I think we need something. We need some idea of what life might be about and what we what templates and as I say, myths and fables we might follow. So it'll be a show about those ideas and hopefully um, shed a little bit of light on uh, on our own capacity for happiness. But also, of course, it will be done very tough cheek and there will be uh, plenty of opportunity for outright mockery. Fantastic. Well, that's everything. But thank you for coming on. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Absolutely. No, my pleasure. Thanks, Christian. Take care. Thank you for listening. Make sure to take a listen to some previous shows and be sure to keep an eye out for our next episode. But until then, if you know somebody from Sussex who you think has an interesting story to tell, then let us know. You can tweet us your guest suggestions at Brighton Argus on Twitter or directly to me at Chris underscore Fuller 11 and use the hashtag the Argus podcast or you can email or send us a message on Facebook and make sure to stay up to date with all the latest news from around Sussex on our website theargus.co.uk until next time. <laughs>